bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, October 19th, 2021 podcast. Welcome back to another Tax Credit Tuesday. As regular listeners know, Congress spent much of the past few months considering legislation that would expand and enhance many tax incentives. Developers and investors should be considering these potential expansions and enhancements as they negotiate terms for their transactions. And this includes existing transactions that have already closed. Now, today, we're going to focus on the historic tax credit, what potential changes might mean for developers and investors. But we do encourage those with transactions using other tax incentives to do an equal analysis. Now, the Historic Tax Credit Growth and Opportunity Act was introduced in the House and Senate earlier this year, and if enacted, would make several significant enhancements to the federal historic tax credit. Importantly, for purposes of enactment, many of those provisions did make their way into the House Ways and Means Committee infrastructure bill that was approved by committee a few weeks ago. Now, joining me on today's podcast is my partner, George Barlow, who has extensive experience in the historic tax credit area. George and I will discuss what developers and investors should consider as this legislation works its way through Congress. George's clients include various stakeholders in the historic tax credit world, as well as in other community development areas. If you attended our historic tax credit conference a few weeks ago in Chicago, you may have seen George moderate a panel on building the capital stack for historic tax credit transactions. Now, today, we're going to talk about several historic tax credit proposals that did make their way into the House Ways and Means Committee bill. We're focused on that. Now, perhaps the headline provision would temporarily increase the historic tax credit provision from 20% to 30% through the year 2025. Once again, it would increase the historic tax credit percentage from 20% to 30% through 2025. And then it would gradually wrap back down for most developments to 20%. When I say most developments, because the ramp back down would not apply to the first $2.5 million of qualified rehab expenditures for smaller projects. Basically, smaller projects could continue to claim a 30% credit. Now, another provision that is in the House Ways and Means Committee approved bill would drop, would reduce the substantial rehabilitation test threshold from 100% of adjusted basis to 50%. And other historic tax credit provisions that are very notable in the Ways and Means bill would eliminate the historic tax credit basis adjustment, as well as amend the disqualified lease rules. The amendment of the disqualified lease rules would make it easier for nonprofits to access historic tax credits. Eliminating the basis adjustment would put the historic tax credit on par with some other tax credits without a basis adjustment and increase the value to the investor. There's also in the legislation that was approved by committee, a provision that would allow qualified historic public school buildings to be rehabilitated through equity funding provided by historic tax credits. Now, as you can see, there is a lot to discuss. Now, we're going to break today's conversation into three parts. First, we're going to discuss or talk about why participants in historic tax credit transactions should consider these issues now, even though they've not been enacted yet. Then we're going to discuss what developers should do if they are negotiating or getting ready to negotiate with an investor. And third, we'll talk about what a developer should do if they've already negotiated terms with an investor. Now, if you're ready, let's get started. George, welcome to Tax Credit Tuesday. Happy to be here and excited to talk through the changes. This situation reminds me of the year prior to the release of the 50D regulations. In lease pass-through transactions, owners of the master tenant must claim income equal to the historic tax credits received over the shortest recovery period of the rehabilitated building. Prior to the release of this guidance, many practitioners took the position that 50D income was a partnership item 
And therefore, you receive basis for claiming this, this income. The investors, when they exited, would receive a be able to write off this basis and receive a benefit. Due to this additional benefit, investors are willing to pay a higher price per credit compared to direct investments. Many professionals anticipated that the regulations would remove this additional benefit, trying to put the lease passer transaction on similar footing to the direct investment. As a result, investors started uh, putting price adjusters into their operating agreements and making adjustments to their put prices if the regulations did remove this benefit. We were hired to run various return schedules to help quantify these adjustments. That is a great analogy. It shows you the importance of anticipating future regulatory or statutory changes. I would note for our listeners that are focused on this 50D income issue, <laughs> it's a bit arcane, but I would note that the regulations were prospective. They applied to transactions that were in effect after a certain date. So once again, if that was a situation where you had to anticipate a potential change as well as understand effective dates. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned in the introduction about the various key provisions in the HTC GO Act that made their way into the Ways and Means Committee bill. And the question now that I have for you is when you talk to clients who are negotiating transactions currently, what general advice do you give them? And I'm going to suspect it has to do with understanding effective dates, at least in part. <laughs> That's correct. The effective dates are key because some of these provisions might apply your transaction. Other provisions might fall outside depending upon the timing of your transaction. For example, as currently written, the increase to the tax credit percentage would apply to projects placed in service after March 31st, 2021, whereas the removal of the basis reduction applies to projects placed in service after December 31st, 2022. So any project not yet placed in service should consider the effects as the provisions have the pot potential to apply. I think the important part about the effective date that you mentioned is we don't know what the actual enacted effective dates will be. So even if you look at these effective dates and think, well, they wouldn't apply to, the, you know, these changes wouldn't apply to my particular development, we don't know what the ultimate enacted uh, effective dates will be. So it's important that every developer and investor contemplate the potential changes and not pay too close attention to the currently suggested uh, effective dates because they can change as the legislation move, moves its way through Congress. I agree. So now let's get a little more specific by talking about transactions that are under negotiation right now, since they are the most likely to be affected by the positive changes in the HTC GO Act. And let's talk about the individual provisions and starting with the one that is the most notable, uh, and that's the increase in the credit percentage from 20% to 30%. What guidance are you giving to clients who are trying to anticipate this potential increase in negotiations with investors? Sure. I'm advising my clients that they need to start discussions with the investor. And also, they should confirm that their legal documents would support the additional tax credits recognized. Typically, operating agreements require investors to make additional capital contributions for the actual amount of historic tax credits generated by the project. But these additional contributions are often capped or limited to about 10 to 25% over the forecasted historic tax credits. Whereas if this provision is enacted, we're talking about a 50% increase. This is an issue because the additional tax credits are necessary to cover cost overruns from COVID-19 impacts, and therefore additional equity is needed by the project. There are two potential uh, solutions to this issue. 
one, the investor could increase their capital contribution limit to account for this potential 50% increase. Additionally, you could negotiate to bring in another partner if the current investor is unable to make additional capital contributions. We can assist this process by running financial forecasts or return schedules, reflecting these additional tax credits to assist in your negotiations. Great. Thank you for that. And I I'm really sympathetic to a lot of historic tax credit developers that have been experiencing these significant cost overruns. So this 50% increase hopefully does get enacted to aid many of these developments that are uh, currently undergoing rehabilitation, but have some significant unexpected uh, financing gaps uh, due to higher costs due to COVID-19 and other matters. So let's turn, we've talked about the 20% to 30%. Another notable provision is the possible reduction of the substantial rehabilitation test. And, you know, for, it would seem like a lot of transactions, if you're under negotiation now, you can't be counting on that being enacted. Uh, So it seems like that might be a little bit uh, less significant uh, to most developments. What are your thoughts on anticipating that provision and how that might be affecting current negotiations? Yes, I would agree that, I mean, the change would be very helpful and it would help a lot of projects, but majority of projects, you're not going to start the closing process until you're sure that you're going to generate historic tax credits. So, I mean, there's potential if you're slightly below the threshold and you think you might still be able to get to 100% that you might be proceeding and you could uh, negotiate. But I think this is this change is going to be more of once it's enacted, then you'll see these projects start closing. So the, another change that is in the Ways and Means Bill, which is pretty notable in terms of the benefit it can provide to investors, and that's the elimination of the historic tax credit basis adjustment. And that's basically, as you know, but many of our listeners may not know, is if you claim an historic tax credit, there is a basis adjustment uh, where you have to reduce the tax basis of the asset. Uh, in the con- in the other situation that we often see with historic tax credits is you don't actually have a basis adjustment because the historic tax credit is being passed through to a lessee. Basically, the lessor can pass the historic tax credit through to a lessee. In that situation, the lessee actually has to recognize negative depreciation expense in a sense. <laughs> uh, and it's what, you, what we discussed earlier, this quote, 50D income. And that's basically the investors claiming the tax credits. And there's no basis adjustment because the owner of the property, the lessor, doesn't claim the historic tax credit such that the lessee of the property that's getting the historic tax credit has to recognize this phantom income, if you will, which is basically this depreciation amount that would have been claimed on the historic tax credit basis that didn't get reduced. Um, so if you eliminate the historic tax credit basis adjustment, it means there's a additional loss uh, to the investor when they do... Uh, exit the transaction, or there's no, uh, uh, there's none of this phantom income uh, from 50D. So, what's your thoughts there in terms of advice for clients if they're negotiating a transaction right now where there is a basis adjustment and this 50D income, how they might be addressing the potential that this wouldn't go into effect? Sure. Again, the main advice is you got to start conversation with your investor. That in this situation, you would hopefully try to negotiate a price adjuster to be reflected in your operating agreement so that if the this provision does get enacted and you do meet the requirements that you would be able to receive the price adjuster it's um creates an additional benefit the um, as you alluded to the amount of losses will increase so the investor will recognize additional losses and it could potentially impact your cash waterfall so it could impact the amount of cash flowing to the different partners 
to assist in this process, we can run a financial forecast, removing the basis reduction or removing the 50D income to help quantify this benefit as part of your negotiations. Yeah, definitely. When I think of the provisions that investors and developers most need to discuss in advance, it's the 20% going to 30% and it's the basis adjustment. But there's also uh, sort of the two other provisions, uh, one dealing with the disqualified lease rules. Uh, and that's, you know, there are rules limiting the ability of an historic property to be leased to taxes of entities. Um, so there is a provision that would amend those and loosen those rules so, such that more nonprofits could be tenants of historic tax properties. And then there's also a provision that would allow qualified historic public school buildings to be rehabilitated by the historic credit. So how does that, those two potential changes from having discussions with investors that are working on transactions right now, what's the relevance of those in your discussions? I think you you kind of already hit on it, but the 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 main relevance is it probably expands your potential tenant pool to include more nonprofits. No, I and it would definitely be nice to be able to do that, and that the you know might end up also affecting the underwriting and the like. But we can uh, move on now. Let's talk about transactions already closed. So you know we've talked about transactions that are being negotiated now. You run the numbers and the rest. If a transaction is already closed, you already have an agreement in place. Do you think a developer should just sit back and say, well, I'll wait and see what happens? Or should they be reaching out and just having discussions with their partners? Yeah, absolutely not. You need to be proactive. Reach out, start discussions with your investor. As you're discussing, the investor might be willing to make additional capital contributions or allow another partner in to uh, help the project. They might even make other concessions, knowing, uh, trying to improve the feasibility due to the COVID-19 overruns and impacts. Great. Thank you uh, for that advice. And the other reason, as with most issues, you should always discuss them earlier because there may be options that investors have right now if they plan for it now that they may not have in six months or a year. And an example would be maybe they, the fund that is your investor has additional equity to invest and they're looking at other transactions and maybe they could hold that uh, back for this particular transaction that you've that they've already closed on. So just, you know, you really want to talk to your investor and your other partners as quickly as possible about these potentialities and how they might be addressing them so that you're as many options. Usually time doesn't create more options. Usually time creates uh, fewer options and, and matters like this. So uh, I'll echo your comments about definitely discuss uh, with your investor now. So this has been very helpful, George. I appreciate you walking through uh, these various uh, provisions with me and our listeners. Uh, there's a lot going on. So I'm sure some listeners who are hearing this are going to want to reach out to you uh, if they're not already your client uh, and see if you can help them in terms of addressing the benefits of these provisions to their transactions. So if you could share your email address so listeners can contact you, I'd appreciate it. Sure. My email address is George, that's G-E-O-R-G-E dot Barlow, B as in boy, A-R-L-O-W at N-O-V-O-C-O dot com. Great. Thank you for that. And I'll include your email address in today's show notes as well. Uh, Appreciate your insights once again. Please do stick around, George, for the off mic section in a few minutes. While I'll ask you some off topic questions that I suspect uh, listeners will find instructive. I always appreciate getting a non-tax credit or tax incentive advice from my guests to share with our listeners. To our listeners, be sure to tune in to next week's podcast. My guest will be Mark Shelburne, a housing policy consultant with Novogratik. 
article discussed what states are doing concerning their qualified allocation plans for the proposed federal neighborhood homes tax credit. We'll talk about what developers should be thinking about now, now they can weigh in on the QAP for this potential new community development incentive. You can be sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Tax Credit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where listeners can get a little bit more advice from our weekly guests unrelated, or at least not directly related to tax credits or tax incentives. And one of my favorite questions, and this is a, more of a personal privilege because I'm a big fan of podcasts. What is your favorite podcast? And as I say every week, you can't pick Tax Credit Tuesday. I know I can't pick it, but the, the Tax Credit Tuesday is the first podcast I listen to every week. <laughs> the, the second podcast I listen to is The Money Guy Show. It's uh, two financial planners. They talk about investing and retirement advice. I found that I was tended to be fairly conservative in my investing and it just has helped me become a better investor and you know work more towards my retirement. Excellent. So another question that's a favorite is what's the best professional advice that you've ever received? I would have to say I received this several times from uh, my my boss and other employees was do not turn down any opportunities. You don't know how often they're going to come. Each opportunity is a chance for you to grow, build your expertise, and just give you more experience. Uh, that is uh, uh, great advice. You never know what's behind the corner of an opportunity. And then my th- the third question I have for you, which is another, I guess I have a lot of favorites, <laughs> is uh, productivity tips. I always like sharing with listeners various productivity tips. Uh, so what is your uh, best productivity tip? My best tip is you got to develop an email management system. As somebody that closes tax credit transactions, it's not unusual to get several hundred emails a day, which can be overwhelming and stress you out. So I came up with a system where um, I turned off the notifications just because I found I'd be working, you'd see that box and it would pull you away from what you were working on. And so I, about every once an hour or so, open up my email, make sure there's no fires that you need to put out. And I start the day and end the day by responding to all the emails and trying to clear out your inbox. But then I use a system of search folders and flags to kind of use a to-do list, make sure I, I never miss the email. And then that way it keeps your inbox uh, more organized. Well, I definitely agree with the turning off the notifications because that definitely can be a little disturbing and distracting. <laughs> How about rules? Because I believe you use Outlook for your email system. Do you do much with the Outlook rules in terms of taking particular emails with certain people and certain sources that then direct them into different folders? I, I do use some rules. I, I probably need to use more than I do, but um, I use the rules to take my inbox and it only includes emails that I haven't already kind of flagged or you know, put into a folder so that I, I have a smaller inbox versus having a right. hundred emails in your inbox of things you still have to do. To do. And I use it to kind of uh, sort your emails, but I probably need to develop a, a few more uh, uh, rules to, to help my process. No, I definitely, I end up using the rules. There are a lot of regular emails that I get, you know, basically sort of automated emails. And I end up directing them to certain folders that I know are a lower priority. <laughs> so when you get when you get in those couple hundred emails a day, 
the, the lower priority ones are already sort of pre-sorted, uh, um, but it definitely takes some attention. Uh, but I appreciate those tips on email management because that definitely is something that uh, every day I'm trying to get a little bit better at myself because that is such a way of engaging with uh, clients that and it's important to be as responsive as possible. So thank you for that. I appreciate you joining me on the podcast, George. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.